topic of our demo talk tonight is attitudes do matter in the practice of mindfulness meditation. Now, though we may be following meticulously the schedule and doing each and every sitting meditation and each and every walking session, even though we may be observing the eight precepts as best as we can, and even though we may be restraining our senses, not looking here and there, not paying too much attention to external sounds, and certainly the like, observing silence, and even though we are following meticulously, following and applying the instructions as given in the Satipatthana Sutta, as well as given by the teachers here, yet our meditation practice may what? Unfold or not? It might not unfold properly. Now, the reason for it near this might be that our attitude towards practice is not helpful. Instead of using the word attitude, we might also use the term approach. Our mental approach towards the practice, the mental inclination that we bring towards the practice. So over the years, I have found that attitudes attitudes with which meditators practice do matter a great deal. And on one occasion, a Burmese Satna Sidon, who uh, is Satnet now, um, who founded his own monastery here in this Satna very country in California, who came back to Burma for a visit, and Satna then interviewed the foreign meditators, he did comment on how important it was to pay attention to the attitudes with which a retreatant practices. And Satna, these attitudes do, to some extent, become obvious during the interviews. Now, To simplify matters, we could distinguish between unhelpful attitudes and helpful attitudes towards practice. Now, what we shall do is first look at some attitudes that are not really helpful to practice. Having done this, we will then go on to elaborate or to discuss other attitudes that tend to be more conducive to practice. And that will lead to a proper unfolding of the practice. Now, the first case, and for you to figure out which mental state lies behind it. A retreat, and during the very first few days of a retreat, 
during a sitting has a beautiful experience. The mind is so calm, the body is so still and calm, and it's so easy to observe the rise and fall. There is a sense of peacefulness that goes with the experience. One is taken away by this wonderful session. Now comes the next Tatna sitting, at the beginning of which one closes the eyes, starts observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen, and then a thought crosses the mind. Oh, it would be so nice if I could get that calmness from the previous sitting back. What is this? What kind of attitude speaks from this kind of a thought? Greed. There you go. Greed to repeat or to recreate a certain uh, wonderful experience. Now, greed or desire might also manifest as having high expectations with regard to what uh, uh, should be happening in one's meditation, having um, anticipating certain experiences, having heard from others, oh, I have certainly this or that experience, and certainly then wanting uh, to uh, have a similar experience. Wishes, desires for you know, certain experiences to take place, these are all you know, expressions or manifestations of an agreed-oriented uh, attitude, or you, know, you could put it as a goal-oriented attitude towards practice. Now, at other times, it certainly could be that we are sitting in meditation and are experiencing a number of difficult certain bodily as well as mental formations. For instance, a number of bodily pains come up. And then we find ourselves avoiding those certain pains or even trying to get rid of them as well as the accompanying mental formations. Or we might find even though a teacher is trying to give good advice, to give a helping hand, yet the retreatant is resisting. Resisting the uh, help offered, help or advice offered by a teacher, resisting the meditation method in itself, resisting the place or the location of you know, the retreat center, and resisting difficult experiences altogether. Which mental attitude stands behind this, or which mental factor colors this attitude? Aversion. Aversion. It's easy to see. 
So the next time around, when you find yourself being a bit aversive to a certain experience, then not only look at certain of the difficult physical or mental experience or formation, but also on occasion take take a closer look at the aversive you know, mental attitude with which you are handling uh, 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 what is happening in your practice. Now, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, a retreatant might uh, come for an interview and certainly then you know, might be given good advice, and our retreatant thinks, well, this I know already, it's nothing new, and for this I don't have to come for an interview. Or, in a Dhamma talk, some important point is being made, and the retreatant silently sits there and thinks, my goodness, this is below standard. I don't need to hear this kind of teachings. I know this already. Or one might to overdo it a little bit. One might certainly feel, well, I know this already. I seem to be knowing everything much better than the teacher or my fellow retreatants. Now, which mental factor determines <laughs> this uh, uh, attitude or colors this attitude? What would you say? Delusion for one thing. You know, that's generally stated yet incorrect. More specifically? Conceit. There you go. Pride and conceit. And pride and conceit usually manifests as feeling feeling or thinking of oneself equal to others, superior to others, or at times even inferior to others. So pride and conceit oftentimes is involved when the mind starts comparing, comparing oneself to others. So if you find your mind is doing this, then be careful and pay close attention to what is happening. Now, pride and conceit might also come into play when one has just accomplished to sit for two hours non-stop and no one else is, remains in the meditation hall. Everyone else has left beforehand, and one feels so great. <laughs> Am I not a great retreatant for having sat for two hours non-stop? Nobody can compete with me. This too is an expression of an attitude that is governed by pride and conceit. Now, if you keep comparing your own practice to others' practice, will this help your meditation? Will it accelerate your practice? Probably not. Now, on occasion, 
we it might certainly come, we might find within ourselves or also in others, a different kind of attitude. This time, the emphasis is, uh, seems to be on my practice. So always talking about my practice, my way of practice. The teacher says one thing, but I don't want to do it that way. I will do it my way. Or my seat in the meditation hall. Someone has been daring enough to take my seat. Or a just uh, pretty ego, taking a pretty ego-centered attitude. And this then it may manifest as trying to manipulate one's experiences, trying to interfere in what is happening, or you know, to just use its different word, trying to control what is happening. Now, this too is an attitude that is not necessarily helpful. And what would you think? Which mental factor is at work? Which mental factor determines this attitude? This one is a bit more difficult. Delusion, of course. Yes, that's underlying. Selfing. 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 Yeah. Uh, okay, no, that's correct. And what's the mental factor? You're saying the right thing. Attachment, mm, attachment to... Ah, there we go. So, wrong view. The belief, the wrongful belief in the existence of a self, and or simply just a wrong understanding of interpreting things in a wrong way. Now, clearly, meditation practice is not about me, me, me all the time, but rather about letting go of that ego-centeredness. The more we practice, the more this satna eventually happens. Now, at times, one might satna especially in, in the case of a beginning you know, retreat and being totally new to mindfulness certain meditation, one might not understand what is really meant by the practice, how to do it, and certainly thus take a somewhat confused attitude towards the practice. Confused, certain, a bit ignorant, certain attitude thinking, just as an example, uh, that mindfulness meditation, satipatthana meditation, is primarily, and its ultimate goal is to feel uh, great, to feel happy all the time. Now, is this really the case? Is this the ultimate certain goal of satipatthana practice? It's not. So, there are I've been told, you know, retreat in certain to whom you know, this goal of you know, 
um, achieving a state of well-being. So to be freed from one's bodily distress and mental distress is the most important thing. So just this feel to achieve a state of uh, a good, pleasant feeling. Now, the mental factor that speaks out of this or that underlies this particular attitude is clearly one of delusion. Delusion, ignorance. It's certainly a very a simple, uh, simple case. Now, at other times, a retreatant with the best intention does the practice but is somewhat unconvinced, doubtful about the teachings, about the teacher, about the practice, about one's own ability to do the practice, having little esteem for the practice, for you know, the practice of mindfulness, and being overly skeptical. Practicing with this kind of an attitude will be very helpful or not. In modern sciences, we have to be skeptical. We have to doubt certain uh, uh, various statements being made. And in Vipassana practice, if you're overly skeptical, it will not help your practice. So, the mental factor that underlies certainly this particular attitude obviously is a skeptical doubt. It is, as the Buddha has stated in the text, good to be doubtful of dubitable you know, things, but it is useless you know, to uh, be doubtful of uh, um, uh, things such as Satna, the teachings of Satna, the Buddha, the Buddha himself, and Satna, so on. If certain things, certain aspects one doesn't understand as yet, then one might at least consider to set these Satna points aside and Satna then to simply go on with one's Satna practice and Satna then sooner or later there's a good chance that the answer will come up. Now, When you find yourself in San Francisco's Japanese garden, playing frisbee, throwing frisbees with your friend, then you will be doing this most likely with an easygoing attitude. So it's your leisure time, and certainly there's probably no major pressure on you, and certainly then you're just doing it for the fun of it. Now. This might be the correct attitude, or might be a possible attitude when you know, being in San Francisco's Japanese garden and enjoying oneself. But 
if we bring that same kind of attitude to our mindfulness practice, then you would agree that this is useful or not? Probably not. So, mindfulness practice does, is not to be done with a sloppy, easygoing, casual, negligent or neglectful attitude towards practice. So, taking on an attitude of carelessness, of heedlessness, of being lax and inattentive, slack, forgetful, unmindful, unconcerned. So mindfulness practice is everything but uh, these uh, points that have been mentioned. Now, at times we might certainly find ourselves in a retreat and said we've worked certainly quite hard for a while, maybe for a day or two, and certainly the practice is unfolding quite nicely, and then you know, the thought crosses the mind. Now I've really earned myself you know, some leisure time. And one then basically becomes somewhat sluggish, unprepared to observe whatever pre predominant object comes up, the mind, one allows the mind to become inactive. Which mental factor lies behind this? Behind this particular attitude towards practice? Torpor. Torpor. Sloth and torpor. That's it. And basically, what is happening, one allows the mental factor, the unwholesome mental factor of sloth and torpor to influence one's attitude. And certainly that, for sure, will not really help one's own practice. Now, one might certainly think, okay, so, taking on a lethargic and inactive, a bit certain lazy, sluggish attitude towards practice is not recommended. Well, then I'll do the opposite. And what about this? One then practices with the greatest zeal possible, day and night. Sleep is not necessary anymore. Meals is for the others, not for me. Would this attitude work? It will not work either. Now, in this case, what is happening? Which mental factor is at work? Viriya. And so too little of it? Too much of it. Excessive effort. So it is excessive effort, then that um, determines our attitude and certainly this might certainly then have unexpected, uh, unpleasant results. 
Now, at times, there's certain, a number of other attitudes that certain uh, unhelpful attitudes that could be mentioned, but I'll uh, mention just briefly mention just one more. Most of us would consider the arising of joy as certain a phenomenon, as a um, phenomenon that said we would welcome. And we would certainly encourage this certainly even. And certainly so when we practice with an overly joyous attitude, we might certainly think that certainly this will then um, bring about certain changes, hold some changes in our practice. There is a certain point in our meditation practice when this particular attitude of excessive joy will not be too helpful. And it will basically bring about a certain agitation in the mind, and with an agitated mind, it's going to be difficult to observe predominant objects. Now, let us certainly take a look at some other ways towards or approaches, attitudes towards certain practice. Now, on many occasions, the Buddha has recommended various reflections. Reflections on the Dhamma, reflections on uh, one's meditation practice. And in the context of attitudes you know, towards our you know, own mindfulness, certain meditation, it might be worth to reflect on the search that the spiritual search that we are engaged in. Now, the spiritual surge that for which we are here is not to be underestimated. For the most part, it is certainly rooted in wholesomeness, and the Buddha has referred to it as even a noble search. In the Pani scriptural language, given as Ariya Pariesana. Now, what is this noble search about? And I'm quoting from the first volume of the Majjhima Nikaya, near section 163. Here, someone being subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeks the unborn supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. 
being oneself subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, one seeks the unaging supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. And then, along the same line, being oneself subject to sickness, to death, to sorrow, and certainly to mental defilements, one understands the respective danger and then seeks the undefiled the supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. This, the Buddha says, is the noble search. Now, what I'm trying to get at is that if we realize that the work we're involved or engaged in here is not just some ordinary work, but it is actually a noble form of work, then we might, then this kind of reflection might then determine to some extent our attitude towards practice. So, with this satna, then we will realize, well, what we're doing here is not just uh, hanging out, spending time, enjoying good food and good accommodation, but uh, there's much more to it. And I might as well uh, apply myself wholeheartedly to the practice. Now, we might certainly further reflect on the preciousness of this retreat and Satna on the preciousness of the preciousness of the pricelessness of the Dhamma. So it takes a number of or it takes the coming together of a number of factors that allows for a retreat to unfold. It takes people with a lot of good intention, a good certain heart, a good volition to make something like this one month certain retreat possible. And to realize certain this and then to appreciate all the good effort, all the time, all the good mm, intentions that have gone into organizing this retreat and suddenly then with appreciation, with gratitude to do one sudden practice. Now when it comes to the Dhamma, its value is beyond the value of ordinary worldly things. There, in the end, there is no price tag for the Dhamma. It is not available in uh, any uh, grocery store or wherever else. You cannot just pay you know, a certain amount of money for it and then call the Dhamma yours. <coughs> 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 
With cheap things, you can acquire those easily. Things that are a bit more expensive, you will have to work harder to then earn the necessary amount of money to then purchase certain of those certain things. When it comes to extremely precious certain items like gold and silver, jewelry and certain and so on, houses and certain and the like, they are very expensive and it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort to realize certain of those or to acquire those items. Now, the Dhamma is more precious than gold and silver and jewelry and houses and the like. And the Dhamma has been of tremendous value to many people, not only at the time of the Buddha, but also after his passing away, even now, and it will continue to be valid in valid and valuable in the future. So here we have something that is extremely precious, that is more precious than any material worldly good, and thus if we want to gain this Dhamma, we do need to, um, or this thing uh, needs to reflect in our attitude. Now, to help with this particular point, think of the owner of a vintage car. Now, some of you might know, not know what a vintage car is or what the so-called vintage area was. Cars that were manufactured between the beginning of 1919 and 1930 are known as automobiles of the vintage area. To give you some examples from this era, famous was the 1925 Flynn car, the 1926 Bentley Speed 6 Tour, the Ranger 4, and the Model A20. Now, if you happen to be the owner of such a vintage car from the 1920s, then you will shortly look after this car very carefully. You might uh, even make arrangements. You will keep this vintage car in a, in a special garage. You might even install a heating system there. And you might certainly then, on a daily basis, go into the garage and shine up your vintage car. And so, if you see the slightest uh, um, damage here or there, you will immediately get it repaired and in doing so make 
really sure that nothing gets broken. Now, on occasion, on a sunny and bright day, you might take your vintage car for an outing. You drive downtown Main Street or you drive down Main Street in your hometown. In doing so, you will make sure not to bump into another person's car and you will equally make sure that other people don't drive into your so precious car. And on occasion, as a proud owner of a vintage car, you might suddenly then also participate in a rally of vintage cars, but always very concerned about your precious car. Now, when you do your meditation practice, your mindfulness practice, think of yourselves as the proud owner of a precious vintage car and maybe even more. Now, the practice that we're doing here concerns or is about the Dhamma and just imagine the Dhamma is far older than your nine, your vintage car from 1919 and certainly from that period and uh, it is far more precious than a car from that period. So do shine up your meditation practice on a regular basis and do care for your practice as much as possible. So the attitude that I would like to recommend in this context is and to practice, to do one's own meditation practice with the greatest care and respect. The Venerable Pandita Bhivamsa, on many occasions when teaching mindfulness practice in Burma or abroad, stressed this aspect of care and respect. For many years I've thought, my goodness, this is maybe a bit too much. But actually teaching, I do realize that there's a lot to this aspect. So it's not just the attitude that we bring to our meditation practice, but um, the value that we give the practice itself the esteem that we have or the lack of esteem for the practice. Now, if we consider that the mindfulness practice that we're doing here is something really noble and that the Dhamma that is part or that the practice is based in the Dhamma is extremely precious, then we might consider our uh, uh, consider the meditation practice itself as uh, worth of greatest uh, respect, and then it will be so much easier to practice with an attitude of care and respect. If that attitude is 
present in your own meditation, I can guarantee you that your meditation will unfold in no time. Now, on many occasions, the Buddha stresses purity. Purity or purification. Purification of what? Purification of our bodily conduct, purification of our verbal conduct, and purification of the mind. And so when we do this mindfulness practice, we want to keep this in the back of our mind and work towards ever greater purity in physical, verbal, and mental conduct. Now, as we engage in our mindfulness practice, this will then, and we're mindful from moment to moment, this will then also result quite naturally. When mindfulness is present in a continuous manner, wholesome mental states are likely to arise. Now, earlier on, quite a number of attitudes were mentioned that, as we've seen, are not all that helpful towards our own meditation practice. So having seen that, it becomes quite obvious that it is best to practice with an attitude that is colored by and um, based in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That is further based in not in the absence of conceit, not being opinionated, that is based in the opposite of laziness, so in other words, a balanced effort that um, is not based in skeptical doubt, and that and an attitude that can be described as being calm, detached, practicing with an attitude, taking, taking on an attitude of interest and curiosity. Now, allow me to elaborate on this interest or curiosity just for a little bit. If a teacher has to tell you, do this, do that, and etc., you might not be all that certain um, interested to um, actually observe what is going on. But if you do your you know, mindfulness practice and you really want to find out, okay, what is the rising and falling movement of the abdomen going to be like the next moment? And then the following moment, what is suddenly going to happen in terms of predominant feelings? Or mm, I'll, I would, I'll be very interested you know, to find out uh, what will happen next on a mental level. If you practice with this kind of a curiosity, then it's the curiosity itself that will pull you 
ahead and then you will you yourself will want to find out what will happen next and at that point a teacher does no longer need to push now we also want to practice with an attitude of a relaxed and alert mind and with an allowing mind, allowing experiences you know, to you know, simply just unfold. Whether we like this or not, it doesn't really matter. Think of a researcher or a scientist. A researcher who has uh, mm, set up put in a certain experiment and then actually runs the experiment will have to accept whatever the results of that experiment are. Whether the researcher likes those results or not doesn't matter. And so as a you know, retreatant in mindfulness certain meditation, we want to you know, take the same kind of approach namely the approach of a researcher, and in an objective manner, unbiased manner, observe whatever comes along. And even if the most unpleasant or very difficult experience comes up, well, we just treat it as another object of observation. We remember to label it, we observe it as best as we can in a non-reactive manner, not identifying with the experience, not getting carried away by it. And so this will then make things so much easier. Now also it's helpful to um, practice with a gentle attitude of mind, not forcing the practice, not um, trying to you know, do um, to you know, well uh, you know, do things in a uh, rather harsh manner, trying to produce certain experiences. Also, we want to leave concepts aside and again be like that researcher and simply observe, um, carefully observe whatever is happening. To add one or two more aspects here, to surrender oneself to you know, the practice, to practice with devotion, to give oneself wholeheartedly you know, to the practice. Now, there's other aspects certainly that might help a great deal. And among you know, those are to slow down all of one's activities. This aspect of fitness slowing down is uh, 
not necessarily favored in all traditions of Vipassana meditation. There's at least one tradition that clearly mm, discourages uh, you know, this aspect of footness slowing down. So it's worth you know, to look at what is involved in you know, slowing down, what might be the reasons for slowing down one's activities. Now, first of all, if we come from an experiential point of view, then it certainly can be stated that retreatants who practice over an extended period of time, so several weeks, several months, will naturally slow down their activities. It is a natural process. It's not something that is artificial. Now, when we actually slow down our activities, then we might find that slowing down supports our supports the intensity of our practice as well as coming into the present moment and being in the present moment. It further supports the development of mindfulness, of concentration as and based on those the arising or development of intuitive wisdom. So, the arising of wisdom could be stated as mm, a clear-cut benefit of this uh, slowing down of activities. Slowing down will allow us to go deeper, to investigate or probe more carefully and more deeply. Slowing down our, you know, in our walking meditation, slowing down um, activities during, let's say, um, when you know, taking a meal or you know, on other occasions, will open up a microcosm of new experiences. Now, obviously, in our you know, ordinary world, uh, outside of an intensive retreat, it's uh, important to do things certainly quickly and uh, efficiently. Um, this, yes, but in going about things in this way, we miss out on so many details. We simply just do not notice uh, those details. And slowing down very much helps to pick up you know, things that usually escape our attention. As a result of slowing down, in the context of an intensive retreat, we might find that overall we make more, less mistakes. For instance, we drop less items, cutlery, or maybe a napkin. We mm, are we you know, slam doors less often 
than we would do under normal circumstances. So slowing down uh, is a way of coming into closer contact with what is actually happening. Now to give you an, an, an illustration for this, when you watch a movie that is played at certain ordinary speed, well, you see the whole you know, story there. And then you might think, okay, that's all to it. But when that same movie gets played at slow, at much slower speed, then you will you know, recognize very clearly that a movie consists of an, an X number of uh, uh, individual slides one after another. So by slowing down that same movie one realizes there's a different reality uh, to it. So the same thing goes for our uh, mindfulness Satna practice. Now An aspect that sometimes does not receive much attention during mindfulness practice is the aspect of intensity, the intensity with which we practice. Different approaches are there. One could certainly say, well, intensive one-month retreats are not for me. I'm going to be mindful for the remainder of my life. However, that mindfulness is going to be uh, a bit more on the surface. That uh, uh, would be a valid approach. Some you know, people you know, take this approach. And certainly then you know, think you know, that uh, this is the way to go. So when it comes to intensity of practice, it could be that our practice, that we practice um, with low intensity, but it could also be that we practice with certain, quite certain, some intensity. Now, in the Mahasi tradition of Vipassana meditation, much emphasis is given to the intensity with which we practice. And the Venerable, the late Venerable Mahasi side of Burma has expressed this by way of an illustration, namely by saying many centuries ago, maybe a thousand years ago, before the invention of matches and gas lighters, in order to produce a fire, people had to energetically and unremittingly rub two sticks of wood together so as to attain the necessary intensity of heat and that suddenly then would lead to a spark and then a fire. So the same thing applies to our meditation practice. 
it's important to keep up the intensity of practice mm, as much as possible. Now, there are certain activities or certain ways of practice, certain behaviors that are helping to intensify our practice and others that are not necessarily that useful. Now, during previous Satna Dhamma talks, the importance of, of mindfulness has been stated, and in particular, the continuity of this mindfulness. In the end, it's not just a matter of continuity of mindfulness, but also a matter of continuity of our effort, as well as our concentration, and that then leads to the arising of the intuitive wisdom. Now, the Buddha spoke of six qualities that would lead to the decline of a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni or in general terms of a practitioner. One is delight in work, the next is delight in talk, delight in sleep, delight in company, not guarding the sense doors, and then lack of moderation in eating. So, this is what Satna the Buddha uh, did, or these are the points that he stressed in the context of maintaining a certain intensity of practice. This then applied to our modern day situation would mean that we keep unrelated activities um, aside, that we don't get involved in them, such as excessive reading, as well as extensive writing, and especially journal writing, then with the cell phones around, making of plenty of calls, or sending SMS messages, or simply talking to fellow retreatants, excessive socializing, and so on. If one were to engage in those activities, they would definitely mm, decrease the intensity of one's practice. So therefore, mm, uh, those, it's best to uh, keep those to an absolute minimum. Now, Marcia had mentioned already avoiding eye contact among retreatants, and one might certainly add, let's say when you are in the dining hall having your meal, breakfast or lunch, and you've put some food into the mouth, and certainly you're chewing the food, then you might consider to close your eyes for a little while to then totally focus your attention 
on the process of chewing itself and certainly the different you know, flavors that certainly go along with the morsel of food, you know, the texture of it, the temperature of it, and certain other you know, qualities. Now, on occasion among new retreatants, one you know, finds uh, that when at the end of a session, a sitting session um, approaches, um, or towards the end of a you know, session, then such a newcomer would time and again open the eyes and check the time. Now, if one were to do this you know, frequently, this would really you know, disrupt one's sudden practice. And so every time one opens one's eyes, the, some agitation will be created, some ripples will be created in the mind. So if you want to intensify your practice, then you might want to cut back on such a kind of a um, habit. Now, Especially at the beginning of a retreat, it's not necessarily always pleasant to um, have some intensity of practice going. Now, that's a natural occurrence. And if it's there, you know, then simply you know, be mindful of it and over time, the mind does get used to the intensity of one's practice and one becomes quite okay with it. To give you one more illustration, namely, illustration for the intensity of practice, during later stages of mindfulness meditation, it happens quite naturally among retreatants that they are so mm, absorbed in the observation of a predominant object, whatever that object might be, that they are barely aware of what is going around them, especially during well, during the sitting meditation, even you know, during the walking meditation. So one might be doing one's walking meditation and barely aware of other retreatants passing by. And you know, at such a point, well, one might feel as if being in a bubble. And it's that kind of an intensity that will gradually you know, develop over time. So it's not what I'm, I'm not trying to say to force these things, but to work you know, towards um, a certain intensity of practice. Now, this pretty much brings us to the end of our Dhamma talk on attitudes do matter in mindfulness meditation and allow me you know, to close you know, by wishing uh, equipped with 
a really wholesome uh, attitude, applying yourselves wholeheartedly to the practice, practicing with greatest care and respect, may your meditation unfold um, smoothly, swiftly, easily, and may the peace of Nibbana be yours. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.